<laughs> How's that? Is that all right now? Yeah? Okay. So the, the core of tonight's talk will be about how to make effort in meditation practice. So sometimes at this point on the first day of a retreat, we are asking ourselves very seriously, why are we doing this? <laughs> Whether you are a beginner or um, have done a number of retreats, we can find this question coming up on the first day. We can be questioning the intelligence of our decision to, that we made to come on a retreat. I mean, on one level, it's, it's so... It's so boring. It's so unstimulating. The mind is so unruly. It's kind of like a rebellious child. You tell it to do one thing and it does whatever it wants to do. Right? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so why do we keep going? Or what gives us the uh, faith to keep going? It takes a certain amount of faith to not pack up your bags and, and go home. It seems that sometimes we have to be dissatisfied enough with our usual strategies for trying to find peace or happiness in this world um, we have to be dissatisfied enough to really want to give meditation a try, to, to be willing to put forth the amount of effort that it takes to do it. I think Greg just touched on that a little bit yesterday. Sometimes that's the only motivation that is enough. Sometimes if we have enough curiosity, that can take us pretty far. If we're just curious about the mind and the heart and life and what it all means. Sometimes we kind of stumble onto a meditation retreat and we're not really sure how we got here. The first time I came to this place, I, I, I thought I was coming because I wanted to see what it was like to not speak for three months. I was curious about that. Didn't take me long to see that I was suffering and looking for uh, relief, looking for peace. So then, so somehow or the other, we're either curious enough or dissatisfied enough that we, we wind up coming to a place like this. And then we kind of hope when we get here that through some pure force of will we can make ourselves happy or we can feel a little bit of peace. We, we, we hope that we can maybe string together enough pleasant moments while we're here that we'll feel happier at peace and we can kind of keep enough unpleasant moments at bay that we'll be happier at peace. It would be great if that strategy worked, if it brought us the kind of abiding happiness, the kind of happiness that's closer to peace that most of us are looking for.
you may have thought that you were coming here and that it would be pleasant enough that um, that would bring you the peace or happiness that you were hoping for. It's out in the country, and um, if you live in the city, it's it's probably nice to be here with the birds. And the we have great sunsets here often, and um, uh, pretty good food, and uh, nice woods to walk in, and it's quiet usually. So perhaps you you did have that hope that you would come here and it would be comfortable enough that that would bring you the happiness or peace you seek. Did that work? Probably not. I mean, it might have worked some of the time, um, but then we have these unruly hearts and minds and bodies that don't seem to want to obey what we want them to do. And then maybe the knee starts hurting, or on Monday perhaps there'll be some construction sounds, or life just keeps changing, right? It doesn't seem to quite fix, fit, quite uh, fit our expectations and wishes. So these are the kinds of questions that Vipassana meditation is pointing towards um, understanding And they're essentially spiritual questions, deep questions, like how do we find happiness in this world or peace? How do we live in a world that seems to change pretty much all the time and that doesn't obey our wishes? The schedule that we give you is hard on purpose. Um, It's not designed for comfort. You may have noticed that. (laughs) It's designed so that we have to face uh, our life or, or face life. It's the same thing, the truth of life, the truth of our life. It's designed so that we go through a wide variety of experiences, times of of, uh, pleasant experiences, time of unpleasant experience, times of neutral experiences, um, ups and downs, what we like, what we don't like, what we're willing to open to and what we're not so sure we want to open to. It's designed for all of that to come up. That's why it's not so um, extra entertaining. <laughs> it's, uh, it's designed for, um, for non-distractedness. It's designed to bring us into this body, heart, and mind so that we can really see for ourselves and develop an understanding, not an intellectual understanding, one that comes out of thinking, but a very intuitive understanding that comes from connecting with our life moment after moment after moment, from connecting with the truth as it presents itself in this heart, body, mind, moment after moment after moment. I don't believe that Buddhism has a monopoly on the truth. I think the truth is the truth and that uh, different spiritual practices have different avenues towards it. I do believe that this technique, 
um, and this is really one of the strengths of Buddhism, is meditative techniques. I do believe that this technique is a very effective tool for, for um, developing that intuitive understanding or that intuitive wisdom that guides us towards a deep kind of happiness and peace and rest. A happiness that's in alignment with the way things are, with, with truth, basically, with change, the truth of change. We really have to figure out how we're going to deal with living in this world of change. A number of years ago, I worked as a Buddhist advisor at Mount Holyoke College, and um, so one day I was talking with the gals, and I was saying, it seems that uh, Buddhism puts a lot of emphasis on change. Why so much emphasis on this fact of life? And one of the gals says, because that's pretty much the way things are, and if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. And um, I just loved that fresh way of putting it. If you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. We all have issues with change, you know, where something pleasant is happening and it goes away. We have an issue with that. And uh, we're sitting here, things are going well, and something unpleasant happens. We have an issue with that. And basically, life is this flow of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experiences. And we have to figure out how we're going to deal with that. And the schedule is designed to help you, um, to encourage you to learn how to deal with that. One of the truths we see also when we come to retreat is we see that how much we as humans live in our thoughts about the world, about reality, rather than experiencing reality directly. And so you'll even notice this with the breath as an anchor, right? There'll be this, we start to distinguish the difference between the thought of a breath and experiencing the breath through a thought and the actual connection with the breath, which is the experience of pressure, expansion, contraction, tingling, uh, movement, um, warmth, coolness. We also notice that in these thoughts, we live so much uh, rehashing the past and leaning into the future. I like to exercise every day, so today I was riding my bike. I ride my bike to a place where I walk a little bit and then I sit. And I noticed as I was riding my bike, noticed it more on the uphills, how my mind was really leaning into when I was going to get to the place that I was going to. It's like we live our lives that way, really. So I, when I noticed that happening, I, ah, now. And then I experienced the coolness of the breeze, the um, green colors emerging, the warmth of the sun, the sound of the wind, the heat in my legs from, from riding the bicycle. 
That's the kind of movement that we're making towards, you know, away from these living in our thoughts that are so, that's so much out of the moment into what is this direct connection with life manifesting right here. And the tragedy when we, when we live so far, um, so much in our minds and our thoughts, the tragedy is that we miss our lives. You know, I was missing my life because I was leaning into the future. And what we often do as humans is we lean into some future where it's going to be better, right? Where we're going to have it all figured out. We're going to have it all together and we're going to be happy. <laughs> and the tragedy is we miss right now, which is, which is the only life that we have. And then the other tragedy of this is that when we live so much in our thoughts, we miss a chance to learn from life and we miss a chance to learn wisdom from this direct connection with life. Certainly there are ways that we can use our thoughts to learn certain things about life and to figure certain things out. But the deeper intuitive understanding that seems to lead towards transformation doesn't seem to come from the the thought realm. It seems to come something like this. (laughs) Um, And it comes, this is what we talk about when we talk about insight meditation. This is the kind of insight that we're talking about is the insight that we get from this direct connection moment by moment to our lives we let our lives teach us how life is. We let our lives teach us what peace is. Your life will teach you if you pay attention. So the kind of transformation that we're hoping for in this kind of practice is the kind that comes through this moment-to-moment connection with the truth of life as it manifests here and now. And so that's why we're putting this emphasis on coming back, coming back. You know, we wake up from the stories, the fabricated world, the imaginary world that we create. We create these very intricate, imaginary worlds, and then we believe they're true, right? You might have noticed that. We, we actually think we're living them. <laughs> and then you have this moment, you wake up, and you're like, oh, I'm in a meditation hall in Barrie, Massachusetts. Um, but that's a great moment, is that waking up. And then we emphasize, come back to something physical, tangible, here, now. Whether it's the tactile sensations in the body, or seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting coming back to this this sense world as our as our connection with life and then we'll have these moments of kind of synchronicity we'll have these moments where there'll be a moment of life a moment of seeing hearing smelling tasting tactile sensation and there'll be a connection. And we'll feel the, the awareness and the experience synchronize. And we're here. 
And when you taste a moment like that, it's beautiful. Many of you have tasted them, I know it. We've all tasted them at different times. Perhaps sometime you're watching a sunset and, and just for a moment you're not in that thinking mind and you're just there, we're here. There's a, the awareness and the, and the experience come together. So we can notice those moments when they happen. We can't make them happen, unfortunately. <laughs> you, they, they, it's almost there's a surrender involved, a surrender to right now. Um, they happen when there's, there's no resistance to the present moment. We're learning a certain kind of non-resistance to the present moment. And it has nothing to do with what the experience is. It's just, we've arrived, it's beautiful here. I read a National Geographic uh, last month and they had this story, that was very interesting, about mosquitoes. And apparently mosquitoes get hit by raindrops fairly often. And a raindrop, a mosquito getting hit by a raindrop is like, that's quite a bit bigger than a mosquito. Um, it's quite a force of nature. And they're like, how do mosquitoes survive this? You know, rainstorms getting hit by raindrops. And they said they they survive through non-resistance. They don't resist the raindrop. They go with it. And then eventually they slide out from under it. And somehow that seems applicable to meditation practice. We're we're practicing non-resistance to the moment of our lives. Now, non-resistance does not mean passivity. I'm not saying that we don't do what's skillful. Yes, we, if we're in the middle of intense anger and it's just overwhelming us, well, it might, we might make some decisions about what to do. Or uh, sleepiness, we might stand up. So it's not passivity. But, but the non-resistance to these moments of our lives means that a, a willingness, you could say, to open to whatever the experience is. To meet it as our life, our life right now. And life itself teaches us that this opening the heart and the mind to this ever-changing flow of experience, life teaches us that that is peace. That's where we can rest. That's the truth. I'd like to talk a little bit more at this point about how we make skillful effort in meditation practice. And I'd like to start with a a quote from the Buddha's uh, sutras or discourses. And this one I find particularly delightful. It's about the paradox of effort. So a heavenly being called, they're called devas or devas, devas in, um, uh, I think it's the Pali language. So a, a deva says to the Buddha, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. And crossed over the flood is a metaphor for found um, peace or our um, 
learned how to um, untangle the tangle is another expression sometimes used. So tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. The Buddha said, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva says, but how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? And the Buddha said, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. And the deva says, At long last I see an honorable one, totally unbound, who without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. And in a move that I find both delightful and intriguing, the Buddha didn't actually tell us what he did. You might have noticed that. He he said he didn't stay in place and he didn't push forward. And he told us what happened when he tried either of those but he didn't tell us what he actually did. He did, however, tell us which extremes we might want to avoid. And you could say that skillful effort is everything that's in between. It's in between these extremes of staying still, which means not doing pretty much anything, and pushing forward, which would be all the manner of striving you could say making too much effort so he basically said if he if he if he didn't make any effort he sank we can kind of relate to that we get we sank into the into the entanglements of the mind and the heart if he pushed too hard he was whirled about meaning that he became agitated so these are the extremes we avoid, and, and we try to find some place in the middle there. So I want to talk about those extremes a little bit. So what does it mean to stay in one place? That's basically... Um, not doing much to train the heart and mind. And then we see that uh, we sink into the usual um, reactivity and, and, and uh, difficulties of heart and mind. So we see that meditation does take some dedication. It takes some effort. It takes some patience. In the early days here, it said that somebody wrote a letter to the Instant Meditation Society, and <laughs> I think we we often have this wish <laughs> that that is where we had landed, that we that this is the Instant Meditation Society, but um, um, unfortunately, it is not. <laughs> in the time in this world where we have so much instant uh, this and that, we often come to meditation. Some of you may be thinking, well, I've been here a whole day already. Shouldn't, you know, shouldn't, I, shouldn't my mind be obeying me a little bit by now? Um, it takes a little bit longer than that. Staying in place on retreat could mean um, putting... 
too much emphasis on comfort. Comfort's great, and if some of you came and you're really stressed out and you've just been through a horrible time in your life, you may need five days of comfort, and you may need to put a lot of emphasis on that. So there are times when that really is what we need to do. But on retreat, if we put too much emphasis on comfort, we never stretch our capacity. What we want to do here is stretch our capacity to meet life. It's another way of saying opening to our present moment experience. And too many naps, too many tea breaks, too many walks. Um, Sometimes we may be very comfortable if we do all that, but we might not learn much. We might not learn in the way we would if we would come into the hall maybe when we don't want to. Or if we would do the schedule, sit, walk, sit, walk, just like it says. So the way we learn is to stretch a bit out of our comfort zones. The trick is to stretch just the right amount out of our comfort zones. We don't want to stretch so much that we're just getting wound up and tighter and tighter and tighter. That's not useful. Then you need to take a walk. Then you should have a cup of tea. But we don't want to emphasize being comfortable so much that we, we, avoid, we avoid everything that we don't want to see. We avoid the unpleasant experiences of mind, body, heart. So, we, so we, it's actually quite satisfying to stretch. It feels good. Um, it... it, it It feels like a reward because it means that we aren't limiting ourselves. And it's actually easier to do a retreat 100% than 75%. You know, 75%, you know, well, should I go have a cup of tea now? Or should I I take a, I'm not so sure I feel like going into the hall. It's very, it's hard. But if you're just like, hmm, I'm just going to follow the schedule. It's easy. You don't have, I mean, it's not easy, but (laughs) you don't have to make all these decisions. You just do what the schedule says to do. It really simplifies things a lot. And we gain a certain kind of self-respect and confidence from doing that. It really strengthens us. But again, we have to be careful to see that we're doing this out of curiosity and a real wholesome kind of um, wish for ourselves. And that if we're stretching and again, we're getting tighter and tighter and tighter, then we do back off. A number of years ago, I, um, I went to Burma to practice basically because I, I, I felt like my practice was comfortable in the United States. It was pretty easy for me. To, to practice here, and I wanted to uh, stretch a bit. And so I went to this place where we, um, Greg and I teach sometimes and sit sometimes in northern Burma uh, in Sagain Hills near Mandalay. Be- beautiful, a lovely, lovely retreat. Every January there's one there for three weeks. But it's not the same as here. Um, 
there, it, there's, uh, it's less controllable. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, the first day I got there, when I went a number of years ago, um, I discovered that my uh, little uh, house, I had a little kuti, a little hut, had mothballs in it, which I'm sensitive to. So we tried to get the chest out of the room that had mothballs in it, and then I pulled out my back doing that. And then we went to the room where we were going to be meeting, and they just painted with all these oil-based paints on the floor, which make me sick. And and then um, I have slight asthma, and there was a lot of smoke. And then that night, they had this huge ordination, and like there was loudspeakers with music all, all night. I think they took a break between 2 and 4. Um, I was like, whoa, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to survive. It was, it was really challenging for me. And then to go home, five airplane tickets. I mean, five flights would have had to be changed, and there wasn't any email there, really. So, um, And it was a great retreat. I learned so much. And my confidence in my ability to be with life, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the whole shebang, the whole catastrophe, uh, grew so much through that challenge, through that stretching. It's a beautiful place to practice, I just want to say after I say all that. So stretching, it's its own reward. We, we gain confidence in ourselves, trust, a very healthy empowerment, you could say. Another way we could talk about um, not standing still, making some effort, is perseverance. The best way in meditation practices is kind of steady perseverance. Sometimes I use the example, uh, my, my partner and I, we go hiking, but we have two different ways of hiking. He likes to uh, go really hard, and then he stops and takes a break. I'm a plotter. I like to kind of plod along. I don't like to take breaks. I just like to plod at this kind of steady pace. Now, for climbing a mountain, both of them will work. Uh, for meditation, my way is better. Uh, <laughs> for, me- for meditation, just as, you know, just as steady. Don't push too hard, but just as steady perseverance. So we, 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 we understand that the extreme of uh, standing still or looking for too much comfort or um, not, not really putting forth our heart into the practice, that that doesn't work so well. Then sometimes we go to the other extreme, which is that we try too hard. We try... Um, Usually this, this uh, field of trying too hard is some sense of striving or trying to make something happen in practice or using our will too strongly. And the Buddha said that when he did this, when he uh, pushed forward, that he was whirled about. 
And when we, in our practice, when we try too hard, we see that, we, that the agitation in the mind and heart increase. And so that's the other extreme that we want to um, understand and, and uh, recognize if it's happening so that we can balance our practice. So we talked in the, when did we talk about this? I think this morning. We talked a little bit about how we can come to practice with, you could say, agendas about how we need to be improved. We, we live so immersed in a culture, or the dominant culture in this country is one of um, NACI, never-ending self-improvement, which is actually uh, some motivational seminar person's uh, slogan, uh, never-ending self-improvement. And so we come to uh, practice, and sometimes we can bring that, that same mindset that, that we need to be fixed, or and we need to be fixed now, very quickly. Um, and often that will then uh, manifest as a kind of will that we bring to practice that's really, it's actually kind of aggressive towards ourselves. So we'll be sitting here in meditation and we'll find that there's a meditation that's particularly distracted. The, the mind seems to spend most of its time off in some story. And then when we wake up from thinking, we'll have a little beat up session, right? We'll have this little, mm, I'm such a bad meditator, why? You know, that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a little bit of self-aggression there. It's like mean. We're mean to ourselves, right? Sometimes when we're striving and we see experiences that come up that we think we shouldn't be having, a great sign that we've gone too far in this direction is the word should or shouldn't this shouldn't be happening, or something else should be happening. That's a sign you've gone too far towards this striving. Sometimes people say, when I meditate, you know, before I was never an angry person, now that I'm meditating, I'm an angry person. I know, you know, and they, and, um, and then they may feel bad about themselves. We actually consider that really great progress in meditation because we all experience anger. We all experience hatred. We all experience desire. And part of opening to the truth is opening to these places within that we find unacceptable. Don't look so pretty. Don't look so cool. Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, it's Pema Chodron, says, tells her the first time that she met uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, somewhat controversial uh, Tibetan teacher. And she said, he told everyone present that if they'd come to get their act together, they should just forget it because they never would. 
This is really good news. <laughs> if we have this goal that we're going to get our act together through meditation, once again, we're putting it back into the future that there's some day we're going to get it out there in the future when we're going to be okay, when we're going to be happy. It takes us away from, from this now, which is really our only moment, our only chance to be happy. So it's good news if we can give up trying to get our act together. But if we do meditate, if we, if we, if we show up as best we can and um, create the conditions that, that lead towards greater um, presence, greater awareness, the conditions that you all have chosen by being here, letting go of the distractions of life and the internets and cell phones and all those things and just the simplicity, sit, walk, sit, walk, the boringness of it. Um, if we do that, I'm trying, I, I don't know if I could say we get our acts together. <laughs> it's not exactly that. We're no longer bothered by the fact that we don't ever act together. That's really, that's great progress. But there is a transformation that happens. And in some ways, we're still our quirky old, same old selves. It's not like our personalities disappear. But we do find that when we really pay attention, the heart wants to lean towards wisdom. The heart wants to lean towards kindness. The heart wants to lean towards compassion. It'll find its way there. Just by sitting in this hall, having the willingness and courage to be with life as it comes up moment after moment, just by walking. And this quality that we've talked a little bit about and we'll keep talking about of metta is really important. Uh, it helps balance out that tendency to want to strive, to use our will too strongly. When I first came to practice, I would say that determination and will were definitely strong points of mine. And the determination, I mean, there is a great thing about determination. It's one of the ten spiritual qualities of a Buddha is, is resolution and determination. I had that strong when I first came to practice. Um, I wanted to be super yogi. <laughs> and it was helpful in a certain way because it gave me that persistence. It, it gave me the ability to just keep going, the perseverance, the diligence that we, we need if we're going to uh, go the long haul in, in this practice. Um, but, I, but I used the will a little bit too much like it, it was too harsh. It had that aggressive quality, um, that, turn, that ability to turn against myself. And after, um, when I... Uh, practice for the first about eight years, I did not like metta meditation and I wouldn't do it. Um, 
But at, the, at a certain point, again, we'll come back to this theme of we need to be suffering enough. Um, I went to my teacher and I was like, you know, I'm really aware of my suffering and how much I'm suffering, and it doesn't seem to be transforming. It seems to be sticking around. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm feeling kind of stuck in my practice. And he said, do a metta retreat. I was horrified. It was the last thing I wanted to do, but I was suffering enough. I, I was w willing to try it. And so I came here the next year and did a, a six-week or two-month metta retreat. And... Um, It made all the difference. Through metta, I would say that the power of the metta, of the loving kindness, um, gave my heart and mind both strength and gentleness together. I think that's what we're trying to develop is a heart and mind that are strong and gentle. And what I learned through that is that it, it, it's not this harsh use of the will that, tra that creates transformation. It's more the softening into that creates the transformation. And the metta has that flavor of the softening into. And yes, will still has some um, place in spiritual practice. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have some will and used it. So yes, we need it. But we have to look at how it's applied the tone of it. And when it's harsh, we've, we've entered into the territory of pushing forward, of striving. That doesn't um, help us in the end. So we have to look if, if there's a sense that we're trying too hard. Last summer, I, I teach the teen retreat every year. Actually, this is going to be my last year. Um, I've been teaching it for 18 years now. And um, it's great. We have uh, about 60, 65 teens who come and stay for four days. And we also have great helpers. We have 20, 20 sangha members like you all who come and help out. And uh, there's this one guy who helps has helped many years. His name is Dave, and he's uh, in his 30s and kind of a big guy, a, a musician, tattoos all over. You might think he looks kind of tough, but one time he was telling me, he was like, when I'm on retreat, you know how he says, you know how you check the board to see if you have a note? And when you get on a long retreat, like that bulletin board, prime entertainment, like stimulation, right? So you walk out of the hall, and, and, and the, the challenge is, can you walk by the bulletin board without looking to see if you have a note or not? And you don't get very many notes. Uh, there's not much happening, right, on a long retreat. So he says, you know, you, you know that feeling you always want a note. He said, I'm going to tell you a secret. He said, sometimes I write notes to myself and put them up there. <laughs> And I said, Dave, well, tell me what one of the notes said. <laughs> and he said, the note said, you're trying hard enough. Just the greatest. 
So sometimes we might need notes for ourselves when, when, we're, when we're beating up on ourselves that we're not good enough meditators, we, we don't, we're not doing it right, it should be different, should be better, you're trying hard enough. So what we see is that practice takes um, both more and less effort than we had imagined. It takes more effort in the sense of the amount of diligence and perseverance and patience that's needed in the spiritual practice. And it takes less effort in that um, we don't have to make it happen. There's a book I read a while ago called Buddhist Acts of Compassion. And there's a story in this uh, book. There's a bunch of good stories, but one I want to share with you. Somebody named Pamela Bloom uh, donated this story to the book. I remember the moment when I first met His Holiness Gyalwa Karmapa, the head of the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, which I obviously don't speak, in the early 80s. I had been practicing sitting meditation for a few years, but I found it simply excruciating. In a small group interview with this great meditation master, I somehow had the courage to drop all pretense and complain. I just hate sitting practice, I remember saying. It's excruciating. I'm so antsy. I can't sit still. I bother everybody around me by moving around. Deep inside me, I feel how important it is, but still, I hate it. I don't know what to do. His Holiness just looked at me for a long time, as if seeing very deeply into me. I thought perhaps he was trying to figure out how to criticize me or put me in my place. But then he took a deep breath and said, very, very slowly, I think... If you continue to practice, in 10 or 15 years, it is going to get easier. (laughs) I was stunned. I almost thought he was joking, but he was perfectly serious. And he was right. It did get easier after 10 or 15 years. But if he hadn't said it to me then, I don't think I would have had the courage and the motivation to continue. In that moment, quite subtly, he gave me the sacred vision to persevere.
I think I'd like to end with a poem from Mary Oliver. Sometimes I say she's the poet laureate of um, IMS. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with the light, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. Let's sit for a minute. May we find the faith to persevere, to give our whole hearts and minds to this sacred journey of discovery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.